0: All right, welcome, let's, uh, let's get started. My name is Dean Healy. I'm a vice president here at Cato, and I'll be your moderator today. Thanks for coming out on September 11th to discuss conspiracy theories. I'll admit that when uh, Jesse, Sam Tannenhaus, and I settled on this date for, for the event, I thought that maybe we were all being a little bit cheeky. I, I was a little nervous that something might happen. You may notice that Sam isn't here. (laughs) Earlier this afternoon, Jesse and I received an email from Sam or someone with access to his phone. (laughs) Subject line, Amtrak conspiracy, double question mark. Turns out they offloaded his train in Philadelphia. Service to DC has been cut off, and he had to turn around and head back to New York, or so we are told. Fox News reports, Amtrak has suspended train service between Wilmington, Delaware and Baltimore after overhead wires were damaged in Maryland. It is not clear yet what caused the damage. So there are shadowy forces at work here, and whatever their motives, it's pretty clear they didn't want this event to happen. But we've secured another commentator, the American Conservatives' Dan McCarthy, who barely an hour ago, graciously agreed to step in and join this discussion. Uh, to get us started, let me say a, a few words about, uh, about Jesse's book, The United States of Paranoia, A Conspiracy Theory. Uh, Jesse takes his, his jumping off point, uh, historian Richard Hofstadter's uh, famous 1964 monograph, The Paranoid Style in American Politics. Uh, which he wrote in that essay, is one of heated exaggeration, suspiciousness, and conspiratorial fantasy. You all know the the, the type. We tend to associate it with uh, swivel-eyed characters who use too much all caps in their emails and know way too much about long-form birth certificates and the melting point of structural steel. (laughs) But as, as Jesse argues in The United States of Paranoia, it's much broader and more deeply rooted than that actually. actually, It's not just your crazy uncle, it's actually America. Uh, like it or not, conspiratorial thinking is as American as the Declaration of Independence in which Jefferson sets the stage for his long bill of particulars against the mother country by writing that governments uh, long established should not be changed for light and transient causes But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, well, then you're you're going to need your own country. Uh, In Chapter 5, Jesse cites Bernard Balin's classic study, The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution, uh, in which the Harvard historian mined colonial pamphlets and newsletters uh, for the ideas motivating revolutionary era thought, and I went back to the book, and sure enough, like I remembered, there's a there's a whole sub chapter called a, a note on conspiracy, where he talks about the the founders' genuine con- conviction that they were faced with a deliberate conspiracy, uh, not just bad inept policy, but a deliberate conspiracy to destroy their freedom, and that this line of thinking, Balin says had, quote. Roots elaborately embedded in Anglo American political culture, and it was almost universally shared by sympathizers of the American cause. At the same time, their Tory opponents were equally convinced that they were themselves victims of conspiratorial designs, that the quote, extravagant, seemingly paranoiac fears expressed by the revolutionaries were deliberately, cynically devised for the purposes of, for the purposes. Of controlling the minds of the populace and getting them to rise against the crown, so political paranoia, for lack of a better term, was omnipresent at the creation. Uh, Jesse's book has a fantastic cover, but when I was reading it, I, you know, I thought the, an alternative design that might work would be a tri-cornered tinfoil hat. <laughs> now, in the in the famous uh, essay that. Uh, the, the Hofstadter essay that Jesse uses as his uh, foil, um, Hofstadter notes somewhat grudgingly that uh, it's quote that 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 the paranoid style is quote not always right wing in its affiliations, uh, but he located this frame of mind this uh, this paranoid style mostly on the right and mostly at the fringes of American politics. Uh, Jesse Jesse begs to differ. In fact, he says the paranoid style is American politics, from the colonial era to the anti-masonic party through various red scares, militia scares, and post-9/11 panics. He writes, "The fear of conspiracies has been a potent force across the political spectrum at the center as well as at the extreme." And what's more, some of the he points out some of the most dangerous forms of political paranoia are the kinds that catch on with people inside the halls of power. Uh, Hoover's FBI saw the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement as something akin to a communist plot. Uh, There's, of course, the 2009 Department of Homeland Security report on right-wing extremism, which warns darkly about groups that reject federal authority in favor of state and local authority and uh, might even be opposed to immigration or abortion. Some of what he has to say in the book about elite paranoia is enough to make you paranoid all by itself. So we've got a lot to talk about and two great panelists to lead the discussion. Uh, Our first speaker is, of course, the author himself. Uh, Jesse Walker is the book's editor of Reason Magazine, the author of Rebels on the Air an Alternative History of Radio in America. And as his online reason bio notes, he has also worked as a DJ, a dishwasher, and a miscellaneous office grunt, and was once hired to help move a clandestine dog farm. (laughs) Please welcome Jesse.
1: Hey. So I thought I would uh, start by discussing sort three themes that go through the book. Um, usually I just say there's two, and I just sort of realized doing a lot of radio interviews and such over the last couple of weeks that there's another theme, which I did not um, spell out as much, but it helped motivate the book, and I think it um, speaks to the way a lot of people think about conspiracy theories, political paranoia, and so on. And that is that you can't reduce conspiracy thinking, broadly defined, to just a single social or psychological explanation. People love to do this, and there's always sort of the moment or often the moment where the interviewer asks, you know, aren't conspiracy theorists just trying to simplify a complex world? And the answer is, well, yes, that's true of many conspiracy theorists. Indeed, it's true of many theorists in general. Theories are good like that. Um, but there are others who just delight in complicating things that seem to be simple. Uh, They might pile on one theory that calls consensus reality into question on top of another, sometimes without regard for how well they might fit together. Another uh, popular theory about conspiracy theories say that they take off because people can't accept randomness. That, for example, uh, they can't accept the idea that a nobody like Lee Harvey Oswald uh, could affect the course of history. And again, that that does describe a lot of conspiracy theorists. But again, there are theorists who thrive on anomalies, who indeed seem happier collecting uh, stories of the unexplained, quote unquote, than they are actually explaining them. There's a whole tradition I discuss in the book of sort of the followers of Charles Fort and people who came after him who just love to fight anything that sort of mucks up a theory and then come up with a theory for a day that might explain it. There's also the idea conspiracy theories flourish at times of uncertainty and crisis, and they certainly do. The trouble is they also tend to flourish at times of relative peace and prosperity. Uh, The 1990s, uh, which is about the most peaceful and uh, prosperous time of of my lifetime in the United States, uh, was a golden age of both frankly fictional conspiracy stories like the X-Files and uh, stories that people believed about the New World Order and so on. Now, one reason why you can't reduce conspiracy thinking to just one social or psychological explanation It's because virtually everyone is capable of it. It's not just one personality type. And that gets to my second theme, and one that Gene talked about in his introduction, which is that American political paranoia has been a force in the establishment as well as the extremes, and it has been for as long as there has been in America, at least as long as we have written records of of America. I, I assume... The Native Americans were full of conspiracy theories about one another, but certainly as soon as the colonists arrived on these shores, um, some sort of elite paranoia has been in uh, in progress. At the same time that American slaves were whispering that white doctors were plotting to kidnap and dissect them, the planter class was constantly seized by fears of slave conspiracies. At the same time that the populist party's rabble-rousers were warning about East Coast banking cabals, Uh, Eastern elites were perceiving populism itself as a creation of a conspiracy, perhaps something, uh, a foreign conspiracy. At the same time that the new left was formulating conspiracy theories about Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson was pushing the FBI for evidence that the communist bloc was behind the country's riots. And I'll give some more examples of elite paranoia later on. And then the third theme is that even when a conspiracy theory is untrue, and make no mistake, some conspiracies are real. The uh, sort of the most common criticism of the book among people who haven't read it is that um, I, how could I say there are no real conspiracies? In fact, I discuss several that you know were real, uh, involving Jig or Hoover and, and other folks like him. And of course, there are conspiracy theories that are half true. They get a hold on some facts and they build out in dubious ways. But even when a conspiracy theory says absolutely nothing true about the objects of the theory, if it catches on, it says something true about the anxieties and the experiences of the people who believe it. It becomes a form of folklore. And I think that uh, you know, just as uh, an animist um, describes uh, natural forces as though they were concrete things as a will of their own, um, some conspiracy theorists uh, describe social forces as, they were, as though they were concrete things with a will of their own. Um, a, uh, a loss of liberty becomes a plot against liberty. A challenge to power becomes a plot against power. Uh, terrible conditions in the ghetto become a plot against blacks, and so on. So with those uh, as sort of my background, I uh, decided I'd write a book that it didn't uh, espouse or debunk conspiracy folklore, but explore it, just to see what can we learn about America by taking a panoramic view of the fears that different Americans have had. And in the first half of the book, I lay out what I call five primal myths of conspiracy thinking. When I say myths, I don't mean stories that are never true. I mean that they're culturally resonant ideas that appear again and again when Americans communicate with one another, archetypes that can absorb all kinds of allegations, true or not, and arrange them into a familiar form. Now, the first of the the five myths, I'll lay out the names of them before I go into detail. They're the enemy outside, the enemy within, the enemy below, the enemy above, and the benevolent conspiracy. And just uh, letting you know in advance, a benevolent conspiracy is not people who think that the CIA killed Kennedy and he had it coming. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's different from that. Um, the enemy outside is defined by the fact that you think he's out there trying to come in. He's outside the community's gates. Um, the details vary at different times and places, but several characteristics of this narrative recur. There's the image of the world outside the community's gates as an unfriendly wilderness where evil forces dwell. There's the proclivity to see those forces as a centralized conspiracy guided by a puppet master or a small cabal. There is the fear of the border zone where cultures mix, the suspicion that aliens at home are agents of a foreign power, and the fear that your community might be remade in the enemy's image. And there's the tendency to see this conflict in terms of a grand apocalyptic struggle, Uh, sometimes literally against Satan, and if not against uh, him, then against something deeply evil. The um, classic case, uh, the first case in American history is fear of Indian conspiracies, Um, and then the second great classic case is the fear of Catholic conspiracies. Um, The Indian conspiracies tended to embody white Americans' fear of the anarchic New World, Papal conspiracies embodied their fear of the aristocratic old world that they left behind. Naturally, there were all sorts of stories in which the Indians and the Catholics were working together, because, you know, they always do, I guess. Um. (laughs) Next uh, is the enemy within, and the most essential element of the enemy within is that anyone could conceivably be or conceivably become a part of the conspiracy. With the enemy outside, the conspirators are conspicuously alien in some ways, in some way, uh, here, the plot permeates ordinary society. The classic example, of course, is the Salem uh, witch, uh, witch trials. Uh, a pop culture example are uh, the invasion of the body snatchers and all of its various uh, kindred stories about pod people, where um, even you might be uh, made a part of the conspiracy in the end without, being, without wanting to. Next, the enemy below. In this story, as with the enemy within, the community's foe is found inside the city's gates, But these conspirators are not indistinguishable uh, from everyone else. They hold a distinct position at the bottom of the social pyramid, which they aim to overturn. They are alien but familiar with a well-defined place in society, perhaps even an essential role in the economy. If the enemy within can be imagined as a mob whose members have been seduced or conned into losing their individuality, becoming pod people, then the enemy below is presumed to be not quite human in the first place a bestial force with monstrous appetites, a collective id eager to rape, boon, loot, and massacre. These images come up a lot in the old stories about slave conspiracies, uh, the fear of plots uh, behind slave revolts. Um, The pop culture example is not pod people, but zombies. Um, Early zombie stories you might remember if you're a horror movie buff. um, They sort of stress the power of the monster's masters, who are able to sort of control people as as though uh, They're in a trance. Later zombie pictures sort of drop the master from the equation. Uh, From Night of the Living Dead on, zombies are appetites on autopilot, released from all control. And the uh, idea of the fear at the heart of the story of the enemy below rests on um, well, there are two great uh, anxieties. One is that a subversive force could somehow step into that role of the mesmerizing master, and the other is that the master, might disappear altogether, transforming those zombie slaves into an unrestrainable zombie rampage. Next, we have the enemy above. Uh, To borrow a phrase from the Founders' day, this is the silent, powerful, and ever-active conspiracy of those who govern. Uh, These are conspiracies in the government, large corporations, other powerful institutions. In the media, the phrase conspiracy theory is often used as though it refers only to enemy above theories. And you needn't even invoke a conspiracy to earn the conspiracy theorist tag. Sometimes, as long as you entertain some suspicions about the people in charge. Um, in the 1990s, Daniel Pipes, the neoconservative historian, wrote a, um, a book about conspiracy theories in which he attacked the Cato Institute uh, as, a, as a not necessarily a hotbed of conspiracy theories, but he singled out something a foreign policy analyst here had written. And the quote that he sort of gave as an example of a conspiracy theory was, today's proponents of global leadership envision a role for the United States that resembles that of a global hegemon. This does not strike me as exactly tinfoil hat territory, um, but that's the way that the enemy above stories get treated. On the one hand, if you're suspicious of the people in charge, even if you're not invoking a conspiracy theory, you might be called a conspiracy theorist if you're... uh, invoking wild conspiracies, but you uh, have a position of uh, authority and influence, you aren't necessarily tagged as a conspiracy theorist because you're talking about outsiders, not about elites. And then finally, the benevolent conspiracy. And that's a secret force uh, working behind the scenes to improve people's lives, Rosicrucians, benevolent extraterrestrials, angels. Uh, If the other four archetypes are secularized or sometimes not so secularized ways of talking about the devil, this is a secularized or not so secularized way of talking about God. Um, you see it a lot in uh, New Age circles. Uh, some form- and, and often then, someone who writes about the benevolent conspiracy, then their literature gets cited as evidence of the evil conspiracy by someone who figures they just found somebody confessing the truth. So the first half of the book lays out these five examples, these five narratives, and looks at particular examples from the... Uh, American past, generally from the 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th centuries. Um, And then the second half of the book looks at the last um, 50 years of American history or so with the toolkit that I laid out in the the, uh, first half. And I'm not going to take you through it step by step, but I will talk about two things in particular that come up in it. Um, Well, actually, three things. One is sort of the emergence of a self-aware conspiracy culture. And in the wake of someone like Hofstetter writing that there is a, quote, unquote, paranoid style, it becomes easier with that sort of idea in mind for people to sort of say, all right, well, I'm suspicious. Let's see what other paranoid people are saying. Um, And you can have magazines with names like Conspiracy Digest, Conspiracies Unlimited. Um, And then as sort of an extension of that, you get what I call the ironic style in American conspiracism, which is people who uh, they, they don't uh, so much want to uh, espouse a conspiracy theory or debunk it as play with it. They want to come up with sort of elaborate conspiracy narratives that in so- that maybe they're just supposed to be funny. Maybe they're supposed to make a satiric point. Maybe there's metaphors in there to be mined. They, uh, the classic example of an ironic conspiracy text would be the Illuminatus trilogy, a cult novel that came out in the mid-'70s. The Church of the Subgenius, if you're familiar with them, are also a, uh, an example of the ironic style. And then the third, finally, is sort of the modern um, strains of elite paranoia. Um, because I think that, as, as Gene said um, in his introduction, the, um, the people in power, by, definition, by the definition of the word power, have greater capacity um, to do ill. And I'm much more worried about uh, uh, paranoia, the paranoia of, um, of people in the government and mass media than I am about it, outsiders. And I, I, I would say that in the 21st century, there have been three especially potent sort of episodes of elite paranoia. And each time you can sort of pair it with a form of outsider paranoia that was more likely to get tagged as a conspiracy theory, but didn't have nearly as much impact. Right after 9 11, of course, you had you know, the so called 9 11 truth movement saying it was an inside job and so on. But the much more potent form of uh, conspir- or paranoid thinking. Uh, that hit the country after 9-11 was the sort of fear where, you know, you see a little bit of uh, coffee creamer, you know, spilled in an airport and suddenly there's an anthrax attack underway. Or a, a whole neighborhood in, in Texas gets shut down because some sort of jerry rig contraption is spotted in, the, um, in someone's uh, mailbox. In that case, it's a true story. It turned out to be an eight-year-old science project. And what's sort of telling about that event is not that somebody thought, all right, World Trade Center, Pentagon, obviously some neighborhood in Texas is going to be the next target, although that's interesting in itself. But it's that after they found out what it was, the police still felt the need to confiscate it just in case. Um, (laughs) The second uh, sort of great 21st century episode of elite paranoia. Uh, is Hurricane Katrina, or in general, actually, the whole reaction to big natural disasters. But Katrina is a good synecdoche for that, because, um, again, it's the, uh, the this, this centralized, militarized response um, to Katrina, uh, which not only was so ineffective, but got in the way of, of so many people's efforts to um, you know, help out um, the victims of that storm. in the aftermath you know, was driven to a large both by this general idea that there's a bestial mob out there and by these wildly inaccurate rumors, uh, you know, people firing at the helicopters, you know, the uh, riot-like conditions in the Superdome, and so on. And again, you heard more people talking. If someone discussed paranoia in the wake of Katrina, you were more likely to hear about the people who thought the government deliberately blew up the levees. But the most more potent form of paranoia was the kind that uh, Seized FEMA and agencies like that. And then more recently, um, after Obama took office, and to some extent during the election campaign, some of their reaction to um, Sarah Palin and her fans. Um, obviously a lot of Tea Partiers have conspiracy theories. I write about the birthers in the book for a few pages, but there's also, you know, there was this sort of vast this effort to see these disconnected crimes. Um, the shooting at the Holocaust Museum, the Assassination of an abortion doctor in in uh, Kansas, and so on, as part of this sort of uh, rising tide of uh, fascist violence. In fact, the the data that, to the extent that we have data, the number of incidents of right wing violence uh, in America was falling in 2009 and 2010. You wouldn't have guessed that from the moral panic that was going on in the media. Um, And I should say, if you want to see a, um, there are other. Episodes of elite paranoia in the last decade, uh, zero tolerance in the schools, um, some of the anti-occupy rhetoric, the scare about uh, leaks that's going on right now uh, in the federal government. But I think those three are are especially um, good examples. And one sort of connecting thread is um, after 9-11, one uh, response was to create the Department of Homeland Security one reason why we had such a centralized, militarized response to Katrina is because FEMA had been swallowed by the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, one of the great moments in the uh, uh, anti uh, tea Party um, panic, or, or this actually was written before the Tea Party movement emerged, but of that uh, moment was this report that Gene quoted from uh, that came out of the Department of Homeland Security. So this raises the possibility not just of elite paranoia, but institutionalized paranoia. And with that, I'll turn it over to, I guess, Dan. Thank you.
0: We're very happy to have as our featured commentator somebody who took the job on incredible short notice. Uh, and, uh, and that's Dan McCarthy, uh, mm-hmm. who agreed to, to step up here. Uh, Dan is the editor of The American Conservative. His writing has appeared in a wide variety of other publications, including The Spectator, Reason Magazine, Modern Age. Uh, he worked uh, before as internet communications coordinator of the Ron Paul 2008 presidential campaign and as senior editor of ISI Books. He's been editor of TAC since 2010, uh, and it is, under his leadership, a terrific magazine. Even David Brooks, who who certainly can't find much to agree with in in, uh, the pages of the American conservative, admits that it's one of the more dynamic spots on the political web. So please welcome Dan.
2: Uh, Well, thank you very much, Gene. And uh, since I'm pinch hitting for uh, Sam Tannenhaus, uh, I started out in thinking about my remarks, uh, what Tannenhaus' critique might be of uh, Jesse's presentation. Uh, and from that, I kind of mutated into a few other uh, uh, angles as well that I think uh, might be interesting uh, to discuss uh, with Jesse and uh, with Gene uh, with as well. Uh, So what I'm going to look at is kind of an ideological examination of to what extent the left, the right, and even libertarians uh, might be susceptible to certain kinds of paranoia or certain intensities of paranoia and conspiracy thinking, uh, which may or may not be worse than one another. I think uh, one criticism that one might make of Jesse's approach is that it's too balanced there's this sense of uh, symmetry that comes out. And of course, Jesse's reacting against the very unbalanced approach of someone like Richard Hofstetter, who sees conspiracy and paranoia as being hallmarks of the right. But perhaps perhaps Jesse goes a little too far. Perhaps there are indeed differences between the left and the right and indeed libertarians themselves when it comes to the styles of paranoia or conspiracy thinking that are um, representative of each. So as far as the right goes, and here again, perhaps I'll give a, a sort of quasi-Tannenhaus take on things. Uh, Sam Tannenhaus has been very critical of what he calls uh, the spirit of revanchism that has uh, taken hold of of conservatism, as he sees it, that uh, a conservative movement which started out with thinkers like Bill Buckley and James Burnham has become more populist over time and perhaps more uh, more hate-filled. So Tannenhaus might well say that even if Richard Hofstetter was perhaps wrong to some degree, Uh, back in the 1940s and 1950s, is he in fact correct today? Are we seeing perhaps a perfect storm of paranoia on the American right? And one symptom of that might be that it seems as if uh, each of the, um, you know, sort of four categories of hostile conspiracies that Jesse outlines, uh, we'll we'll ignore the benevolent conspiracy for the time being, but as far as the four hostile conspiracies uh, are concerned, the conspiracy above, the enemy above, the enemy below, the enemy within and the enemy without, uh, the right right now seems to be keenly concerned about each of these areas. It's not just one or two, but it seems to have enemies uh, from every quarter. The enemy above, of course, uh, is Barack Obama and perhaps uh, the federal government in general. The enemy below, and you're seeing this uh, with uh, some of the rhetoric about uh, the Trayvon Martin incident, for example, uh, you can look at headlines on the Drudge Report and see the uh, uh, sort of things that they like to highlight. The enemy below seems to be minorities or people who are perhaps on food stamps or who are receiving government benefits. The enemy within is, of course, liberals themselves and uh, perhaps in particular secularists. There's an increasing sense of being besieged that one finds among Christian conservatives. And the enemy without, uh, you can see any time that foreign policy is discussed, uh, there's a sense that Islam is our enemy. That a billion people worldwide are somehow coordinating their anti-American thoughts and activities uh, to our detriment. And obviously there are, you know, terrorist groups and other uh, malign actors in the world. But there seems to be a much larger uh, conspiracy that many on the popular right are concerned about today. So on the one hand, that seems to be a sort of perfect storm or a nexus of paranoia and conspiracy thinking that is overtaking the American right uh, at the moment. And arguably, it's perhaps not a purely ideological phenomenon. Perhaps it has something to do uh, with the people who are most likely to identify as conservatives or as Republicans at this particular historical moment. So perhaps it's not about an ideology. It may be about the middle class, perhaps, or this sense of being perhaps uh, middle-aged and, uh, uh, and white in a country that is changing and that in, in the future will not be demographically the same as it has been in the past. So that, I think, is the question regarding, uh, you know, conspiracy thinking and paranoia on the right. Has it become more intense than in the past? And is this something that should concern us? Or is this, in fact, something which, however unpalatable it may be, doesn't really affect people as dramatically as hostile government actions driven by a paranoid government policy? Although one could conceivably see ways in which, uh, should uh, this perfect storm of paranoia get translated from an opposition ideology into an ideology of government, it could be very dangerous. I think one of the very few things that I give uh, George W. Bush some credit on is that he, you know, for all that I, his foreign policy was something I very strongly objected to, he tried very hard to make it clear that America was not fighting a war with Islam. He, he tried, in fact, to emphasize that, you know, there were particular tyrants, particular organizations we might go after, but we were not trying to, uh, you know, fight a, a particular class or kind of person who was inherently evil. And some of that actually seems to be more intense now than it was. Uh, 10 years ago during the Bush administration. So that I think is the the perhaps frightening picture on the right and it's something that I think uh, Sam Tannenhaus might be commenting on if he were here. But let's also look at uh, libertarianism which can be distinguished from the right somewhat and it should really really be uh, considered uh, its own thing. It seems to me that libertarianism's interaction with paranoia thinking and with uh, conspiracies is different from that of either the left or the right in this respect. Libertarians are almost always critical of the state. They almost always have an enemy above, whereas that's not necessarily as true of the left and the right. They may have particular enemies on whatever direction at a given time, but libertarians almost uniquely persistently have, a, uh, have an enemy above. And in fact, even Jesse's you know, emphasis on uh, the danger that conspiratorial thinking uh, represents coming from the government itself, from FEMA and from other federal agencies, Department of Homeland Security, as Jesse says, a lot of people uh, you know, would, would accuse Jesse of being a sort of conspiracy monger simply for pointing that out. That's something that libertarians are more attuned to than other people. Uh, too many other Americans are completely ignorant of this, uh, this real danger from government. But on the other hand, libertarianism perhaps is not only uh, aware of this real danger, but is theoretically inclined always to have a certain uh, hostility towards uh, authority, which perhaps has a a less desirable quality as well. I can give you an anecdote from my own time with the uh, Ron Paul 2008 campaign, which points to what I might call the libertarian paranoia paradox. Uh, I joined the campaign in 2008 right after the uh, New Hampshire primary. And that was also right after the uh, New Republic had broken the story of Ron Paul's newsletters and their controversial things about race. So it was a time when there was a lot of tension on the campaign and a lot of unhappiness with the grassroots. Uh, in fact, what we found is that the calls coming into the office right after the New Hampshire primary, they we were overwhelmingly Not about uh, the New Republic story. There was very little coverage, very little attention paid by the grassroots to, uh, you know, accusations about the newsletters. Instead, what the phone calls that were jamming the uh, system uh, were overwhelmingly concerned about were the Diebold machines, the uh, electronic machines that registered people's votes. And what was interesting about that and what I think points to a libertarian paranoia paradox here. Is that the very thing that made the activists who were jamming the phone lines such good libertarians and such intense and really uh, you know heroic supporters of Ron Paul in 2008 was also something that made them less effective political activists because they were so um, concerned about this idea that there were evil forces in the world all around, even in the voting box, uh, the voting booth, that um, when it came to a-, a time where actual you know political action uh, and organization and um, Activism could have had a a major effect, they became very easily sidetracked and very easily diverted into uh, this idea that either the campaign couldn't win because it was, uh, you know, the deck was stacked against us by the electoral machines. Or else, um, even if they thought that there was a way to reform the system, they were so interested in investigating this issue that there was very little chance to actually go out there and do more campaigning work. So one of the things that makes good, makes good libertarians perhaps also makes them less politically effective. And finally, very briefly, uh, you know, Jesse's book talks uh, about you know, a number of conspiracy theories that pop up on the left. And certainly the hard left uh, is home to a great many uh, kinds of conspiratorial thinking. But I think the center left might be an interesting uh, thing to examine here, because the center left, uh, it, it's often, it seems to have almost the opposite of libertarianism's uh, quality, in that the center left, especially right now with the Democrat in office, uh, is very favorably disposed towards government power. It doesn't like to think that there could even be legitimate problems coming from above, let alone that there might be, uh, you know, that. Um, it, it, it tries to avoid having any kind of conspiratorial or paranoid view of government. It wants to believe that government is as benevolent as possible. Uh, but what, we, what one does see very uh, sort of intensely uh, on the, uh, the center left is this sense that it's okay to demonize anyone who uh, sort of uh, dips their toe into conspiracy thinking. There's this sense of, on the left, where it, it's anti-paranoia it's a kind of heresy hunting where anyone who expresses a degree of skepticism about anything that the center-left uh, you know, considers beyond criticism, especially the federal government and its benevolence and you know, the per- perhaps the particular president that we have in office now, is instantly demonized, not simply as someone who might be mistaken about something, but as someone who is in fact a sort of wild-eyed or swivel-eyed uh, loon. And so I wonder you know, if we have three different styles of paranoia here, a perfect storm emerging on the right, a sort of endemic level of paranoia or conspiracy thinking among libertarians about government, and then on the left, a kind of anti-paranoia that is perhaps the last acceptable form of bigotry and hatred.
0: A, a brief response by, uh, by Jesse, and then we, we will open it up for questions.
1: Should I stand up or just... Uh... Up to you. <laughs> yeah, let's see. Um, Well, I don't have a lot to respond to because I agree with a great deal of that. Um, I should say, actually, that um, although I sort of set up these five um, categories as, you know, archetypes, I also say that they are not always pure examples, that they're very malleable, um, that uh, something that appears as one sort of enemy. I mean, a a classic example of it suddenly changing was when the John Birch Society went from uh, saying that uh, that uh, accusing eminent Americans of being the puppets of international communism, to saying that communism was controlled by various prominent um, Americans, um, and that's sort of indicated by the the two W. Cleon scowls and book titles, *The Naked Communist*, and then about a decade later he wrote *The Naked Capitalist*. Um, and there's also a constant talk, you know, ideas of alliances. I mean, the old. Um, I mean they're used to the uh another Bercher phrase was uh, pressure from above pressure from below so it's not really new to have that imagination of that involves more than one um uh, of the archetypes at once and I do think that you know libertarians obviously are um are most likely to uh, engage in a enemy above conspiracy theory I know I'm certainly the most indulgent of those um so I uh I guess that my uh, my only sort of difference with what you're saying is, is that there's, uh, I mean, sure, it shifts over time. That doesn't necessarily mean the intensity changes. I mean, there were plenty of right-wing conspiracy theories when Bush were, was in power. They did not involve uh, the president usually, but they involved Mexicans or Muslims or liberals or what have you. Um, you know, the center-left obviously has... Uh, always prone to these kinds of elite paranoia scares that are not usually thought of as conspiracy theories, except maybe in retrospect. Um, You know, and and certainly there are, you know, I I mean, you know, the the New Republic, you know, could participate in something, you know, a cult scare or something like that without thinking of it as an example of um, cultural paranoia, but it's very much in the sort of enemy within tradition. Um, But I think, yeah, you can do these kinds of typologies and, and even subdivide further than you did, I think there.
0: Okay, we have plenty of time for questions. I, I,
1: I just wanna throw in one thing before the questions. Any queries about the Kennedy assassination should be directed to Dan. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so. Yeah, on that, I, uh, I'm i gonna insist, as always, but especially today, uh, that these questions actually be questions. Uh, <laughs> raise, raise your hand, please, wait for the mic, uh, state your affiliation if you feel like that's important. Uh, and then make sure that your disquisition on the grassy knoll or uh, what have you uh, actually ends with a question mark. Thanks. Yes, sir.
3: Wonderful presentation. Two brief questions. The first is: You seem to have confined yourself to paranoia in American politics, and I'm curious: Is it whether whether it's any a, a basically a human phenomenon, or is it? Um, That throughout the the world, or is it really any worse in the United States than it is in various foreign countries? And one element I've discerned is that people with a conspiratorial theory imagine that there was a perfect time, a kind of Garden of Eden. Usually when when they were eight years old, the world was perfect, and it's been downhill ever since, because some nasty people are doing bad things. So I'm wondering, does uh, the idea of a perfect... Uh, the, so my two questions are: Is American parano- political paranoia worse than it is in other countries? And secondly, does paranoia presuppose a an alleged Garden of Eden or some other, where everything was right with the world?
1: Uh, thank you. Um, first of all, I, I don't think that America is necessarily more paranoid than other parts of the world. Obviously, there are a lot of conspiracy theories in the Middle East, in Russia, in Latin America. Um, I I'm writing about America because you have well front you have to draw the line somewhere but beyond that um part of what I set out to do was to kind of use this as a lens for examining American history seeing what we can learn about American culture um you know with, you know with this model uh, I'd be very interested to see someone you know see if these archetypes fit in Europe or some other place and and what differences come up um and then the second half had to do with you know, the Garden of Eden. Um, I think that th- this is, again, you know, what I said at the beginning, you can't reduce conspiracy thinking to a single social or psychological phenomenon. There is often an affinity between conspiracy thinking and apocalyptic thinking. And there is often a, a, a sort of an affinity between apocalyptic thinking and utopian thinking. And that utopia is often located in the past. But each one of those often comes with exceptions. And especially when you get to some of the uh, conspiracy theories that aren't vast and ancient, but just have to do with, you know, speculating about what's going on in Washington. The stuff that comes up, you know, that would include a lot of normal investigative journalism, um, you know, does not necessarily have to have either a golden age in the past or the future.
0: Uh, In the back.
4: Hi, uh, Michael Willey, uh, Paranoid Libertarian. Thank you uh, for coming here today. Um, I'm curious uh, if you have any chapter in your book, and I think it would have to be a chapter dedicated to Alex Jones, uh, the man who I think most embodies the insanity of conspiracy theories nowadays. Um, this just a quick quote from him on the conspiracy behind Syria. Um, it's the globalists here running my life That's why they're my front and center problem. They are the biggest, most organized, eugenics-based, scientific dictatorship, transhumanists at the top that plan the extinction of almost everybody and a new species to rise up or humans merged with machines. That's their religion and no one's discussing that. Everyone is going to be deindustrialized. Everyone is going to be put back into the stone age and controlled. And Obama and the globalists and the robber barons—they're going to fly around in their jet copters and their Air Force Ones and their red carpets like gods above us. And they're going to get the life extension technologies. That—that's almost Whitman-esque,
1: you know. I mean, it, you, I could see it broken up into lines. I have one passing reference to Alex Jones. Uh, it, It's—I uh, mean—as it, it's just in terms of his. Um, his role in sort of the modern spread of the idea of the Illuminati. I, I don't get into a detailed discussion of him. He's a fascinating character. Um, uh, one thing that's interesting about him, I, I, to me, like the defining Alex Jones sort of moment, or, or at least most interesting to me, is you can look online and see him ranting against Justin Bieber. Um, laughter and you know it, it's sort of like and this is like a sort of a classic American sort of attitude, like they're giving us that crap, the you know the big corporate America to keep us transfixed with the justin bieber and and it's like he's managed to um I love the fact that he's managed to have not just the sort of the libertarian concerns and the sort of mix of right wing and left wing and so on concerns he has, but you know the sort of teenager who knows that corporate rock isn't isn't punk enough um, so that's you know, yeah, he would be, um, I don't know, maybe someday I'll write something about him more than I did.
3: Uh, Bob Huey, Um, I'd like to follow up on the first question uh, about your other countries. Uh, versus the united states because one thing that differentiates the u.s and i guess also australia and a few places like that is that we don't have natural born enemies which would mean like those people who live in that next valley who are always bad dishonest evil whatever and just about everywhere else you have other tribes you have other groups or other nations who are not far away that you have as a uh, natural enemy is that a need the human has that maybe we're just creating in this country
1: well i think that um actually the at the beginning of the settlement of america you you did have that you had the fear of the indians and that's the first really detailed thing i get into in the book um i mean the name of the chapter is the the devil in the wilderness um and you know, Indians were literally perceived as, in in some quarters as being, you know, manipulated by the Prince of Darkness. Um, uh, you know, there's talk during the witch trials in in Salem that perhaps, you know, you know, the Indians were behind it, sending in the invisible forces. Um, and of course, you know, we saw that uh, that ended in genocide. So yeah, that's an example of how um, paranoid thinking can have terrible results. Um, but, I mean, since then, as, you know, the U.S. sort of continued to build out, that same sorts of ideas were projected onto the Kaiser, which I discuss in uh, in detail, and onto, um, you know, I, I don't go into, as much into yellow peril uh, things, but, again, there's uh, those ideas, but it's similar. So it's like by the time, you know, the United States managed to have the Indians not be perceived as a threat, it was mucking about and making more, uh, you know, neighboring, you know, threats for itself around the world. So.
4: Jason, Jason Kisnicki, Cato Institute. Um, if I had walked up to you in
0: early spring of this year and just said everything that the NSA is doing, I would have been called a conspiracy theorist. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you have to say about The production of true knowledge in a world where the form of the conspiracy actually sometimes turns out to be real. How do we sort out true from false? in the media and in our own thinking and in various cultural forms. What what do you have to say about about the production of knowledge and and the sorting out of true from false conspiracies?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I I do say, as I said, there are real conspiracies out there. I have a chapter in the book that really looks at sort of the post-Watergate investigations in the 1970s, the church committee and so on, um, misbehavior uh, by the FBI, CIA, and so on. Um, and that 's a you know the enemy above that is a libertarian i 'm <laughs> worried about you know um, and and one effect of this, of course, was not only to down there are examples in the books of real conspiracies but of course in the '70s that lowered the bar for imagining still more uh, enemy aboves out there as, uh, as that perhaps the uh, evidence wasn 't as solid for um But getting to your your question, I mean, it's it's the same way you evaluate truth claims in general. I mean, I I don't think that you should reject a story that involves a conspiracy just on the grounds that it involves a a conspiracy. People conspire, the words in the language, for a reason. Um, There are some claims you can sort of reject out of hand because they're self-evidently foolish, because they involve lizard men, you know, or something like that. but I I, I, I mean, I, it just has to do with any sort of, you know, effort at, at journalism, you know, how you weigh the evidence. Um, and I, I I don't know if this really answers your question. I mean, there, there's always, you have to live with a great deal of uncertainty um, reading the news each day. And, and that's just part of life.
0: Just thinking of uh, a news story this week, a quote that uh, sort of gets to, Uh, Jason's point, the uh, cryptography professor at Johns Hopkins who uh, uh, put up a a post on uh, how the NSA's uh, attempts to the new revelations about the NSA's attempts to uh, defeat uh, encryption. And uh, he writes at the end of the post, uh, uh, I'm no longer the crank. I wasn't even close to cranky enough. Uh, And just take a moderator's privilege uh, here. Uh, let me say a little bit more uh, about, because uh, I'm fascinated with the enemy above being a libertarian, uh, mm-hmm. the way that this elite paranoia, when it's married to government policy, can uh, heighten paranoia at the fringes. I mean, you have examples from the COINTEL program uh, where they were the FBI is actually trying to make... Uh, uh, Radical left-wing groups or civil rights groups fear government conspiracies. And uh, my favorite recent example of this uh, that I couldn't resist is uh, my old law professor, uh, Cass Sunstein, wrote a paper in uh, uh, 2008 called Conspiracy Theories, uh, where he talks about how some conspiracy theories are, are, are really dangerous because they can create or fuel violence. And if the government can do something about them, that that it really ought to. And his proposal is that uh, government agents and their allies might enter chat rooms, online social networks or even real space groups and attempt to undermine percolating conspiracy theories by raising doubts about their factual premises, causal logic or or implications for political action. Uh, And it occurs to you that if you wanted to breathe new life into conspiracy theories, a really great way to do that would be to encourage the sometimes true impression, if this were implemented, that uh, people making rational arguments against conspiracy theories are government agents. (laughs) Uh, And uh, as as somebody pointed out, uh, recently uh, in August, uh, President Obama nominated Cass Sunstein to, to serve on the White House panel. Uh, reviewing NSA surveillance, so I wonder, if you'd say a little bit. To what extent is this like a self-licking ice cream cone, where the paranoia about paranoids inclu- encourages the paranoids to be more yeah. paranoid, and on and on. Yeah,
1: I mean, I, as I say about, uh, I mean, for those of you who don't know, COINTELPRO, this was FBI's effort to infiltrate. I mean, there was a various elements to it, but in, at the core, infiltrate and disrupt. Um, various groups that uh, there are different categories, a communist party, um, white hate groups, you know, the new left and so on. And one way they tried to disrupt them was by conv- having the um, government's agents convince the activists that other people were the government's agents and thus spread um, paranoia. And uh, as a result, you basically had a government conspiracy to defeat alleged subversive conspiracies by convincing the alleged conspirators that they were being conspired against. <laughs> Um, and, and at that point, I, I, I don't think there's any way to escape from you know the the I, I, at what point the the truth claims kick, kick in. I don't know. Um, I also had a fun time trying to um, track down some of the people who were whose COINTELPRO um, uh, experiences uh, were um, detailed in various uh, uh, you know files that have been declassified but have the names blotted out and a. Without a whole lot of luck, but I, I, I did have one person who's I, I think kind of suspicious of me calling up and asking for these questions. <laughs> so, uh,
0: yes, sir.
5: Jim Lowen, I'm a private scholar. I'm not going to say any more about me. Uh... <laughs> Except I taught at Tougaloo College some years ago, and Tougaloo was targeted by COINTELPRO simply for existing and for being a black college. Uh, It was an interesting experience. Um, I Well, I won't go any further into it, but it it was interesting. Um, I have a question. Uh, Sometimes even paranoids face real conspiracies, and a couple of the questions have alluded to that. Um, I've got three favorites of my own. Uh, The slave power, uh, the idea that a single person killed JFK and then a single person killed that person totally independently and uh, that a single person killed Martin Luther King and then from the backwoods of Arkansas got himself to brussels and with with negotiating all kinds of false identities and so on en route so those are three that uh, that i 'm not sure are. Uh, not conspiracies. And I'm wondering what you think about those. Do you have any? Uh, I, I think by the, prior the, the, the agreement, those are
0: dance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
5: well, one of them was a
1: I, I will say of the big four assassinations in the 60s, um, the one that's, that, that's the most interesting to me is Malcolm X, because obviously there were mul- multiple gunmen, there was a conspiracy there. Um, and, I th- and um, Manning Marable did make the argument in uh, his biography of Malcolm X that perhaps some in the police had advanced knowledge. He didn't prove it. Um, but that strikes me as, as, you know, the most plausible of the 60s assassination uh, conspiracy theories. So I will say that. So Actually, I, I will say there's actually one assassination of the 60s domestic that every, that's just acknowledged to have been true, which was um, uh, Fred Hampton, the Black Panther. And um Chicago, who the police actually deliberately killed. So, I mean, and that's just that's not even a conspiracy theory. That's you know, Mike Royko and all wrote about that. So, there's um, there's one for your list.
0: Uh, yes, sir, in the middle.
6: Yeah. Um, Howard Marks, thank you so much for your presentations. They're really uh, dy- dynamic. Um, my question is about uh, the uh, role of Hollywood in all of this. Uh, I, when I start traveling to California in the nineteen seventies, uh, people on the left were um, talking quite freely about uh, the CIA, and the CIA were being responsible for everything wrong with America. Um, and uh, then I start, you know, paying attention to the movies that were being produced in Hollywood, and you know. It, the CIA and the intelligence community was demonized. Every single 90% of the films were just, even to this day, um, not a good thing to say and involved in heinous crimes and not doing anything to uh, ensure national security, just evil people. And so, you know, it's it's sort of like, uh, how, how responsible is Hollywood for these conspiracy theories?
1: Yeah, I actually discussed the 1970s conspiracy thrillers in um, some detail. One thing that maybe didn't come out in my presentation is that um, I look at popular culture um, and conspiracy stories that are told as as fiction, um, because that's part of how stories are transmitted. So that includes, I mean, everything from Nathaniel Hawthorne to The X-Files in terms of what I write about. Um, but in the uh, 70s, sure, I mean, there was a, um, that's part of how, you know, the, um, in the wake of Watergate, um, the public's imagination was, you know, more open to that kind of stories, and you had, you know, often I mean, I, the Parallax View. I like a lot of these movies a lot; they're very good thrillers. Um, and and then um, and it, it becomes part of, you know, the way that we can discuss things. Um, and I draw sort of a contrast in the book between, on the one hand, you had May Brussell, who was a conspiracy theorist active at that time who, uh, I mean, she thought Freddie Prince was killed by the government. You know, she had very elaborate schemes that she discussed. Um, And I say that although her... Theories were just sort of jerry-rigged mix of, you know, facts and half facts and speculations and, and so on. They became a way that, that somebody in the, that, who was looking at the things she was writing about and talking about, Jonestown, the SLA and, and so on, could sort of discuss these and, and, and discuss what was happening to the counterculture in the sort of decaying uh, late 1970s period. And, you know, the movies provided something similar. And one really interesting example, um, there was a column in the New York Times in 1975, um, I'm blanking on the name of the writer, Clifton Daniel, I think, um, in which he says that you know the CIA has even been, in passing, has even been suspected of assassinations. And the one example he points to was the fact that this Burt Lancaster movie, Scorpio, had been on TV the previous night. And But there's a story behind that, which is that he had been present when a number of uh, New York Times people had an off-the-record meeting with Gerald Ford, so and asks Gerald Ford, you know, why are you trying to limit some of these, you know, investigations that are going on? And Ford says, um, "Well, there's stuff that could come out that would damage America's reputation around the world." And someone says, "Like what?" And Ford, being Ford, says, "Like assassinations," and <laughs> and then he says, "That's off the record." <laughs> And so the times people had to decide, you know, would they honor that? And they decided they would, but there were still people there who were chafing to write about it. Scorpio became a way to allude to something that he knew, but couldn't say aloud. So it's very interesting the way the uh, the sort of the stories that are told in Hollywood and the stories that are told elsewhere kind of interrelate and flow back and forth.
7: Hi, Jim Harper with the Cato Institute. Thanks for uh, a fascinating uh, subject, and I'm going to cheat a little bit and maybe try to ask two questions, if Gene doesn't cut me off. One takes us back to the NSA-type issues, and I want to get to a conceptual question through them uh, with reference to the argument about uh, elite uh, paranoia or institutional paranoia. My operating assumption about the NSA, the TSA, and other organizations is that they are uh, simply singularly focused and and lacking oversight and other inputs. Um, they're just they're just doing what they want to do. Um, do you do you think that there is paranoia there, or is paranoia just when someone is so so single-mindedly focused that you subjectively say at some point they're paranoid? Um, so that's the, the sort of conceptual conceptual question. Um, second, I'll share a, a brief story that, that uh, brings me to an idea that, that you may have comments about. I was in Singapore maybe six years ago or so. And in the subway, I saw a little flyer that said, we're looking for this terrorist. I had a picture of him. He was from Malaysia. And I thought to myself, oh, what a relief it is to have an actual terrorist to look for. So in the United States, we're, we fear terrorists and have no actual terrorist, generally speaking, a few exceptions out there obviously, no actual terrorist to look for and that makes us paranoid. So is paranoia uh, in some respects a luxury available to people because there there aren't that many real threats to us? Um, first of all, I should say and I I meant
1: to say this at the beginning of my uh, talk, I'm using the word paranoia colloquially, not clinically. I stress everybody, including me, is capable of what I'm calling paranoid thinking. So. I don't feel the need to sort of draw that sort of harsh line. I mean, I'm just talking about this sort of this general phenomenon and I'm not having to, you know, make a, some sort of irresponsible psychological diagnosis of, you know, the people running the TSA. Um, as far as uh, your second thing, I mean, yes and no. I mean, that's kind of, again, gets to the whole you can't reduce everything to one. But there is a quote in the book um, that I use at the beginning of... Um, the chapter on the ironic style of conspiracism, which I, I think sort of speaks to that. It's from the comics writer, Grant Morrison. He says, we should be gratified that we live in a culture so insulated from true horror, it can afford to play with fear as entertainment. And I don't think we're completely insulated from true horror here, but I think that there is this sort of aspect that, I mean, for a lot of times, you know, paranoia becomes like a, 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 um, a recreational activity, right? I mean we like to scare ourselves, you know i I like horror movies i like one reason I kind of got into writing about this stuff is because I really enjoy reading bircher tracts and things like that you know it's i mean science fiction is more fun when they don't know they're writing science fiction um and uh you know John I mean, the mothman prophecies you know i mean that's that's a fantastic book to read. it's like the sort of so um yeah i I answered your question and then I wandered off by that. Hey Bob.
0: For about two more, so you keep short. Bob
1: Poole, Reason Foundation. Uh, an obvious question to me is: Have any leading conspiracy theorists attacked your book and, and tied it to their favorite conspiracy? Uh... I did thank the Illuminati and the acknowledgments just to get out ahead of any accusations. Um, I, I, I should say I have not been attacked um, by anyone who's read the book, but Reason TV videos that have gone up. Um, you can see all sorts of comments by people who haven't read the book, and they're pretty sure what a book about conspiracy theories would be like, what it must say, and who I'm probably, and I, and I see there was uh, some, uh, I saw a forum say, that was noting that the C.I.A. Institute was <laughs> doing something,
3: so.
0: The new one, yeah. yes sir.
3: Thank you for your presentation. Um, my name is Richard Ranger. I work for API, and I won't tell you what we did today. But uh, uh, my question is this: Are there some examples, one or two examples, of conspiracies, conspiracy theories, that actually moved the needle in American public life? You know, there, there, a lot of these are small bore things, but are there some that actually had some influence
1: on yeah. the politics? I mean, I mean, it, Maryland had a revolution in 1689 because the rumors going around that the uh, Catholic rulers of the co- of the colony were, um, you know, hiring Indians to attack the and kill the Protestant population. Uh, the uh, you know, there are boundaries of uh, colonies that were determined by uh, very dubious fears of Indian conspiracies and on forward from then to today. I mean, the um, Especially the um, conspiracy, the elite paranoia that I discuss, Um, you know, it has, you know, enormous, I mean, the red scares and brown scares that that this country has been seized by have have had enormous implications for, you know, the Bill of Rights and, and, you know, other aspects of American law.